Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. As a kid, Franz Lidz's father would tell him scary stories before bed. Only these stories were true. My father was a scientist, engineer, inventor, who never really had much use for fairy tales. He preferred real-life grotesqueries to fiction. And so at that time, I would listen raptly to his urban horror stories, which are tales that filled the dark with chimera and boogeyman and golems. The most macabre tale was the one of the Collier brothers, the Hermit Hoarders of Harlem. I always liked that alliteration. In their four-story brownstone at the corner of 5th Avenue and 128th Street, the brothers sealed themselves up through the Great Depression, both world wars, and as Harlem shifted from a rich white suburb to a poor black slum. Homer Collier, the blind and bedridden older brother, lived there with his devoted younger brother, Langley. It was there in that brownstone that they amassed one of the world's legendary collections of urban junk. And in the end, the Collier brothers had 180 tons of junk stored in their brownstone. And so I get this image of this horror house. Things like tattered toys, Christmas trees, chandeliers, rusted bicycles, broken baby carriages, Ford Model T, moldering oak chests, 14 pianos, two-headed babies and formaldehyde. It was a collection so extraordinary that their accomplishment, such as it was, confirms like a New Yorker's worst nightmare. That they're crumpled people living in crumpled rooms with their crumpled possessions. The crowded chaos of the city refracted in their homes. It's not that New Yorkers hoard more than other people. It's that they have less room to hoard in. That horror house terrified and fascinated Franz so much that, as an adult, he learned everything he could about the Colliers. They booby-trapped their home with midnight street pickings and turned it into kind of a sealed fortress of ephemera. 180 tons of it by the end. And children in Harlem chuck rocks at their windows and call them ghosty men, which is where the title of the book came from. Ghosty Men, Franz's 2003 book, traces everything he could find on the lives of the mysterious hermits. The Colliers had supposedly come over in the Speedwell from England right after the Mayflower. They were the elderly scions of an upper-class Manhattan family. There's all kinds of rumored incestuous goings-on. In fact, Herman and Susie, the parents, were cousins. In 1909, Herman and Susie packed up the family and moved from Lower Manhattan to the budding community of Harlem. Harlem was built for the swells of the time. The rich people would move into Harlem because the elevated subway, oxymoron that it is, was going up. And the idea is that people would move from Manhattan into this new suburb. Well, it never quite worked out that way. The boom of the late 
1800s had turned into a bust by the early 1900s, and nobody moved into these great brownstones and mansions. Harlem, like many neighborhoods at the time, developed under the overtly racist practices of its landowners. There were covenants against African-Americans moving into the area, but the uh, landlords and the uh, building owners realized that they had to fill the apartments with somebody. And by around 1910, they started moving in black families and charging what was called a Negro surcharge of up to 40% to live in these apartment buildings that they were meant for one family, but were broken up into these tiny apartments. When the Colliers moved in, it was this white suburb where their you know, gynecologist father and his wife, a concert pianist, live and, and maintain this mansion. Within 10 years, it had become a black slum. The father had moved back to the Upper West Side. The mother stayed there with her two sons, but they basically barricaded themselves in, perhaps from uh, the poor inhabitants of Harlem at the time. The Collier's Brownstone Mansion was, like the others in the neighborhood, a construction of extravagance. It was a Gilded Age structure that had libraries, elaborate kitchens, high ceiling rooms, a lot of wainscoting, really massive spaces. That's one reason that these large family homes would be turned into apartment complexes that were seven or eight apartments because they were so immense. So there's a lot of room in there to collect. The brothers may have always been a bit eccentric, but did not start out as recluses. They were overeducated, according to their father. Langley had degrees in chemistry and engineering, mechanical engineering. Homer graduated Phi Beta Kappa at Columbia with some advanced degrees, including a degree in admiralty law. They're not what I call typical New Yorkers. You know, Homer walked to his office of admiralty law on Wall Street eight miles every day because he refused to pay the nickel for the subway. But it was a waste of money. And of course, he walked back every day. So it was 16 miles he walked every weekday. One day at the office, the boss noticed Homer's shoes had worn straight through the soles. He was offered a raise on the spot, turned it down, and never came back to work, not even to pick up his last check. Langley never really held a job in his life. He was a pianist who had performed at Carnegie Hall and had once followed Paderewski, the great pianist at the time. But he said that since Paderewski got better notices than he did, he just gave it up. What was the point? He quit the concert stage and retreated to his brownstone in Harlem. In their late 20s on, they pretty much stuck to themselves in this brownstone and only came out at night, sort of like vampires. But vampires dressed better than they did. They wore these tattered rags to discourage people from robbing them or even noticing them. 
He wanted to blend into the scenery as kind of mock homeless people. And people, for the most part, left them alone because they looked like they didn't have any money. Susie maintained her residence in the increasingly cluttered mansion. When she died in 1929, her sons were in their mid-40s. They spirited her out of the apartment through a window late one night and took her to the cemetery in Brooklyn, which was a long way away. She was buried there in this kind of private, almost cult-like ceremony and buried in an unmarked grave in the cemetery. But it was never announced that she had died or how she died or what had happened to her. It was one of those mysteries of the Collier brothers that was never quite explained. To borrow a phrase from Ghosty Men, life in the Harlem Brownstone now became one long conversation between Homer and Langley. So what did the Collier brothers actually do in this mansion alone together? Well, Homer had a stroke in his 30s. He was paralyzed from it. He couldn't walk anymore, crippled by rheumatism, hunched over with his knees bent and his head kind of resting on his knees. And he couldn't see. His brother had to become his keeper. Langley nursed him, washed him, fed him 100 oranges a week in this bizarre attempt to cure his blindness and saved newspapers for Homer to read when he regained his sight. Hundreds of thousands of newspapers. That became the Collier Collection. Aside from that, Langley would go out at night sorting through trash cans and dumpsters, finding food because they refused to spend money on anything. They didn't really believe in money. That's how they spent their days, reading, collecting more trash, newspapers, and piling up their junk. Since they were totally indiscriminate on what they collected, you would just push piles against the wall and build tunnels. So in that sense, I think Langley was an architect constructing the, the framework of the inner mansion. Their solitary lifestyles extended beyond junk collecting. It seems that the brothers made all attempts to extricate themselves from society. They didn't pay their taxes, they didn't pay bills. Tax collectors would come and couldn't get in and leave notices on their doors, dozens and dozens. Langley would never pick them up. His representatives, his lawyers, couldn't get to him either, so they couldn't pay the bills. The police periodically would try to break in. Sometimes they'd try to hatchet or axe their way through. But the walls of junk were so massive that there was no way to get through. Occasionally, Langley would pop his head out the window and just say, go away. He resented that whole aspect of government. He was kind of like a, an early libertarian. They actually owned, at the time, half of the Queen's waterfront, which they left to ruin in many places. Because they were very poor managers or had no interest in managing it. So they had a lot of money. Just never spent it. That led to various utilities being cut off. Telephone service was terminated in 1917, 
followed by gas and electricity in 1928. And somewhere in the mix, they lost running water, too. Which is fine, in a way, with the Collier brothers, because anything like electricity or gas could turn their brownstone into this raging inferno at some point, which was always a danger. But for anything they absolutely needed from the outside world, Langley would devise a system. Langley would make these nightly rounds collecting meat from garbage cans, and he would just cut around the rotted part. He would collect the water from the fountains in Mars Park, and that's what they would use for water. I mean, it was, of course, very unsanitary, but in a way, they didn't need running water, and in a way, they didn't need electricity because uh, Homer was blind and couldn't see in the first place. Langley was used to the dark because that's when he went on his scavenger hunts. They were perfectly comfortable being these creatures of the night. One of the only things that the Colliers shared with their neighbors in Harlem was anxiety about each other. They resented what they called the hooligans in the neighborhood. But I think many of the middle-aged and elderly people had a kind of a benevolent idea of them. The butchers would leave them meat. And at the newsstands, there would be a stack of newspapers that Langley could go to at night and just rummage through and take home. Still, as the looming corner mansion grew more and more decrepit, so did the Enigma. Since nobody could enter, all anybody saw of the place were the newspapers that lined the windows. It was this extremely mysterious place that all sorts of rumors sprang from, and no one quite knew what was it within the four walls of the building. There were rumors that Langley may have killed his brother, and there were all sorts of corpses hanging from the trees, and there were dead people buried under their junk. The uh, stories became larger and larger, and the reclusive brothers became more and more part of the Harlem folklore. They were famous or infamous within Harlem. For Franz and his family, tales of hermit hoarders did not require much imagination. My uncle Arthur was a lot like uh, Langley Collier. The difference, of course, he made his daily rounds in the daylight. <laughs> Arthur had this apartment in the Bronx that was equally bizarre and tunneled. I had visited and actually stayed over one night when I was eight years old, 19... 59, that would be. I would walk through and be afraid that these towering mounds of newspapers would avalanche and kill me. And I was afraid that no one would find me under all these newspapers. But still, as a kid, and it was very fascinating to actually be in that kind of environment. I can't quite figure out why my father in his right mind, or my mother for that matter, who really kind of despised our brother-in-laws, would actually let me and my sister stay in, you know, this huge fire hazard. But it was one of the great memories imprinted on my mind from my youth. According to Lyd's family lore, 
the origins of Uncle Arthur's collection were deep-rooted. This junk mania may have begun at the end of World War I. He was maybe three years old. He had a 13-year-old brother, Leo, who had a job of removing every third bulb from the strings along the beach of Coney Island. That's when the Coney Island still at Steeplechase Park and Luna Park and all the lights along the boardwalk. Somehow, that was supposed to confuse German Zeppelins that might attack New York. And of course, never happened, but why they would come to Coney Island is another question. Leo would bring the spent bulbs home to Arthur, who was fascinated, as any three-year-old might, by their smooth, shiny roundness. As he grew older, they break one by one. But even as an adult, he had saved a few from his youth. That, perhaps, was the start of his collection. And then, when he got older, he would take the F train to the beach of Coney Island with his family, and he browsed through their trash cans on the boardwalk for, for collectible junk. He would come back from those family outings and start hoarding stuff in his little space under the bed he shared with my father. The stories of Uncle Arthur, like those of the Collier brothers, beg at a central question. What makes something junk? Proverbially, what makes one person's trash another's treasure? It goes into the difference between a collector and a connoisseur. I mean, uh, a guy like um, Malcolm Forbes would collect Fabergé eggs, which were highly valued and into the tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Arthur, like Langley Collier, was not discriminating. He'd collect anything. His little shoe, shoe polish sponges you find uh, in hotel rooms, not that he was ever in hotel rooms, but he had a whole collection of those and an entire drawer full of parking tickets that he had taken off the windshield of cars. And I said, you know, why are you taking parking tickets off of cars? And he said, well, people just leave them on their windshields. So we never, we never quite made the connection. And I always wonder, how much those people had to pay in the end because they never responded to their first ticket. He so got into the idea of just having things and collecting that the junk he collected, he considered like his friends or like his cat. They were part of his family. So he hated giving up on any of them or parting with them. He just kept accumulating. He was told me he regretted Mixing up his gems with common everyday newspapers. Of course, the gems were things like broken pencil sharpeners and old shoes. And I looked through his cupboards and there'd be like 73 one-pound bags of coffee and 74 cans of evaporated milk. Amid the stacks of old newspapers and tapes of used razor blades and drifts of pipes and bird cages and scissors or whatever. I once found a, a paper bag containing a single penny and a note explaining that it had been found in front of his apartment building in like December 12th, 1954 or something. In the early 60s, the expression was, look up to the skies. 
Arthur always looked down to the ground. That's how he would find things, not always in trafficking, but on the street. He was this little pluck sparrow of a man. And he was kind of like a Sherpa of Brooklyn or the Bronx, wherever he was at the time. He was carrying these huge sacks of things and even mattresses on his back through the streets of New York. Among the myriad subcategories of junk in Arthur's possession, one department featured above all others. Shoelaces. He would write on the shoelaces if it came from a sneaker or, you know, a patent leather shoe or, you know, a boot. And that became this humongous shoelace collection. As a syndrome, hoarding goes back to the ancient Egyptians, at least. And there are historical accounts of hoarding that date back like 5,400 years to the necropolises of pharaohs, vast cities of the dead. These rulers, uh, Memphite dynasties, were buried in what was called uh, mastabas, which were oblong tombs with sloping sides and flat roofs, and huge storerooms above and below the late pharaohs were jammed, packed with his possessions. Collections typically include furniture, clothing, Magical amulets, weapons, tools, game boards, even lunchboxes, mummified geese, and jugs of wine. In those days, the ancient Egyptians believed that a pharaoh couldn't lead much of a life in the afterlife without his stuff. So basically, they thought you could take it with you. And I think there's an element of that in hoarders that they think that the, the stuff will survive them and maybe accompany them wherever they're going after death, which is why they're so possessive of each individual item and won't give it up. Arthur knew where everything or every, at least every category was, you know, his empty cigarette packs, the matches he found on the street, the parking tickets, all this ephemera was in specific places. He could point to an area and say, uh, well, that's, you know, that's where the bottle caps are. I mean, not that they were in neat piles or anything. I mean, they were in total messes, but they did have an order which only he knew about. You think of people who live with furniture that they hate, and it's only because they inherited it. I think a lot of those collectors, if you will, think that it's destroying the memory of their parents or grandparents or whatever, and they don't want to do a disservice or disrespect their ancestors. But the stigma against junk collecting takes on a much different shape, with some grounds. There's a justifiable reason that people hate living with hoarders. I mean, there are mice, roaches, which uh, Arthur had in abundance, and it had so many mice that his cat was afraid to come out. <laughs> it was a huge fire hazard, and the entire building could go up in flames, and that would be the wellspring of the fire. So I have great sympathy for people living in a building occupied by someone who just collects indiscriminately. On the other hand, they are individuals, and they, they have chosen to live apart from everyone else. My Uncle Arthur was maybe the most lovable person I've ever met, but 
you know, they're not concerned with the welfare of other people. They're concerned with adding to their junk. Francis found himself relating to his uncle on both sides of the issue. As a child, I was fascinated by him, that someone could live this way and build tunnels and erect structures. Although I never quite felt as my father did, that Arthur was just a mischievous boy who wouldn't conform to what society thought an apartment should look like. As an adult, I realized the responsibility that tenants should have to each other and what a difficult position he was putting everyone else in the apartment complex in. You know, as I got older and I realized that the landlords were threatening to evict him, I felt a need to step in and actually clean some of the stuff out before he got thrown on the street. Franz took it upon himself to attempt the insurmountable, to clean out Arthur's apartment. I brought in a gang of friends, maybe five or six of us, just with contractor bags to throw out stuff. It was pretty amazing because we'd find things that had been lost for 20 years. It was almost like an archaeological dig. You'd find these tangled uh, mounds of twine and electrical cord climbing up these rolling hills of newspapers that were still in their plastic sleeves and shirts and jackets slopped out on stained grocery bags and onto grubby carpet and the stove and the kitchen counters disappeared from view and lost under a couple of feet of cans and bottles these colder like mobiles that uncle arthur had fashioned out of clothespins and coat hangers and the bedroom closet was packed with newspapers from as far back as the carter administration this is in year 2000 and the refrigerator had English muffins from the end of the Reformation. We spent eight hours there, not even getting through the living room. There was so much stuff. And then we had to stop because the superintendent of the building said there was no more room outside for anybody else's garbage. The landlord hired his own crew and they spent 10 days cleaning out the apartment. It took actually a month of sanitation workers coming there to clean out the stuff we had brought downstairs. I remember when I brought him in and he was sort of shocked, right, seeing this empty space. And I had brought him an Entenmann's cake as part of like a moving in or removing in gift. And I dropped a few crumbs and which struck me as really odd. He went to a closet and got a broom and a dustpan and swept it up. So I was thinking to myself, God, he really has reformed. <laughs> He's actually cleaning something up. I visited him maybe a month later. The table that had been cleaned was now full of papers piling up and stuff all over his bed. And you could just see rubbish forming these piles. The upside for him was it gave him room to collect more junk. So that he kind of liked. Told me that landlords didn't like the hobby, but what can he do? I've got a lease. It gave him a certain power. That power 
to be your own person free of a society that doesn't understand you. That all came crashing down for the Collier brothers, the morning of March 21st, 1947. Yeah, well, nobody's seen Langley in a while during his nightly uh, rounds. Kids started saying, well, maybe he's dead. I mean, they'd always said he's the ghosty man, but maybe he was a ghost now. It took hold among the people in the neighborhood. What really set it off was every morning, uh, Langley would set out milk for the stray cats of Harlem. They were just meowing under his window for days on end and people wondered why they hadn't been fed. It was that Friday morning of the 21st when the police were tipped off on the matter. The caller identified himself as Charles Smith. There's a dead man at 2078 5th Avenue. Name of the deceased. Homer Collier. Police arrived. Nobody answered. When they axed their way through the front door, the police and gathered onlookers were overcome by the smell of decay. There was this dark forest of junk. It took almost an entire day just to get through the barricades in the front door and bush black through the tunnels and the walls of newspapers. And they'd see like single shoes and single socks laying everywhere as if deposited by a flash flood or these dried up capitalist pens and cereal boxes and great heaps of magazines and drifts of yelling New York Timeses and daily newses and Brooklyn Eagles, uh, New York had 11 newspapers in those days. Cops and city workers who'd been called out to the Collier house before knew that the place would be treacherous, and by design. The brothers didn't want anybody ever entering their space. They feared robbers, burglars, police. So they constructed these elaborate booby traps out of bricks and cinder blocks and bottles of their own feces, and really kind of dangerous, sometimes disgusting things. With every possible entrance walled off with junk, and without knowing your way around Langley's network of booby-trapped tunnels, the only way in was to clear a path. Police began excavating, hurling junk out onto the street. Hours passed without headway. From a ladder, an officer bashed open the second-story window and crawled in, flashlight drawn. What? DOA! They finally found in a corner Homer, who was hunched over in his usual position, being paralyzed with a shriveled orange next to him, dead. He had died of dehydration and hunger. He had been fed. But Langley was nowhere to be found. The cops boarded up the house and went home for the weekend, thinking the younger Collier would turn up. By Monday, he was still missing. There was a search that began all over New York and, in fact, all over the world for Langley Collier. 
which was front page news for several weeks, it became this kind of game to find Langley Callier. And three of the newspapers and tabloids in New York, in fact, put up rewards for finding Langley Collier. People would cite him on the subways and the trains. And he was cited in Europe and in North and South Carolina. Somebody thought they saw him in Chicago. Anyone who looked like a homeless person, basically, a little cap and beard and unkempt, was presumed to be Langley Collier. All the while, dozens of city workers continued sifting through the contents of the house, dropping detritus to the street below to be hauled away. There's stuff flying out of the windows that are thrown by police and mostly firemen who were afraid for their own safety because they feared that the floors might buckle with the weight of all this junk. There's this huge mob of people in the street, mostly locals, but then when the papers started writing about it, people from all over the tri-state area came just out of curiosity to see the, the mansion. People were just catching things as it was flying out the window and in the wind, uh, running, running sheets of music and old newspapers down the street just to have parts of the famed Collier collection. You could not actually drive through that part of Harlem then because there are so many people clogging the avenues. Days stretched into weeks. On the 1st of April, police hoped Langley would show up to his brother's funeral, but no such luck. A professional clearing crew was called in to finish the job at the Brownstone. One day, while they're on the second floor, looking through the debris, a guy reached into a pile of newspapers and said, Oh, I found a toe. After 16 days of searching, it turned out Langley's body was laying just 10 feet from where Homer's corpse had been found. When he was going to bring food to his brother, Langley pulled his own booby trap. It toppled this immense stack of newspapers and detritus that trapped Langley. He could not escape, so he suffocated beneath his own collection. He was hauled out in a gunny sack that threw down the window like his brother had been. And that was the end of the search for Langley Collier. The irony, New York's greatest hoarders crushed beneath the weight of their own junk, was not lost on anyone. You know, the socialist papers at the time talked about capitalism causing their death because they had to possess all these objects and they they were uh, crushed under the weight of capitalism. There were a lot of metaphors going around at the time, and that was one of the most poetic. The family name, too, has cemented in pockets of American vernacular. Firefighters still describe a hazardous, overpacked residence as a collier. Every once in a while, the brothers turn up as a punchline in someone's joke. You broke the all-time low gas bill record set by the Collier brothers in 1931. <laughs> Unless we forget to mention generations of parents criticizing their children's messy rooms. Franz's father had a Freudian interpretation of Uncle Arthur, 
that was certainly adapted to the Colliers as well. My father used to claim that Uncle Arthur's courting was his way of quote-unquote channeling aggression and sublimating it. And maybe there's a perhaps a defensiveness behind what Arthur would call his hobby. Like Langley, he built barricades and set up booby traps and nests inside the walls of junk. But really, I wouldn't call it aggression as much as that was the way he maintained his individuality. For me, there's one thing about the Collier brothers I get stuck on. Their story reads like a parable, a morality tale that ends with a fitting punishment, like a Greek myth. But if that's the case, what was their crime? Sure, they may have not been good neighbors or citizens even, and maybe they should have paid their taxes, but to think of their horrific deaths as symbols of fate, the lesson seems disproportionate to the tale. If you visit Harlem now, you won't find a crumbling brownstone at 5th Avenue and 128th Street. Where the uh, Holly Brothers Mansion once stood, uh, the city of New York has put a pocket park. It's very pleasant in the spring. It's filled with daffodils blooming and grass is freshly green. And there's an iron fence with a dozen sycamores shading the benches within. You can't really get inside without a key, and I have no idea who has the keys except for the uh, Department of Parks. So it's almost like a museum without objects. The street itself is gentrified and looks nothing like it did in 1947. Like much of Harlem, there are these late 19th century brownstones next to empty spaces where the brownstones have been knocked down. So, in a way, the Pocket Park is not unlike much of the rest of the avenue in that there are buildings, an empty space, a building, and then an empty space. So, unless you know what you're looking for or read the, the plaque, you wouldn't know necessarily that this was the cause celebre of uh, 1947. Ephemeral is written and assembled by Williams and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil, with additional mixing from Josh Thane and technical assistance from Sherry Larson. Franz Lids is a writer for Smithsonian Magazine and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Ghosty Men and Unstrung Heroes, Franz's childhood memoir, are two of the most excellent books I've read and reread. Find them, buy them, and find us at ephemeral.show. Next time on Ephemeral. I actually found a tape box that said head cheese in all capital letters on it. And there's no way I'm not picking that up. Also, it's on a tape box of a company that I know did not make tapes after the 1950s. So this is this is an ancient tape, and it says head cheese on it, and I'm intrigued. What is this going to be? Five, four, three. Visit us in the World Wide Web. 
and interact with us on social media at the Fumble Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.